RadioInfluence.com. We'll delve into his new book, Created Equal, and hear his blueprint for fixing some of our nation's problems with Dr. Ben Carson on this episode of United Patriots Uprising with Gary Benford. I'm your host, Gary Benford. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is available at RadioInfluence.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hope you'll subscribe to it, leave a rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. Created equal, not according to a growing number of factions on the left who want us to actually believe that one race is born evil and another born a victim. I'm not even going to dignify their CRT crap by identifying who is who. You know, I'm not even going to go any farther talking about anything when we have an illustrious dignitary right here to set straight the record on several issues critical to the success of our nation. So let's get into it. I had a choice to make that there was no way for me to get around. So I apologize to my guest in advance if I made the wrong decision. I could list all the accomplishments in his lengthy career, still operating on all cylinders, I might add, but that would eat away nearly the entire half hour we have to hear what this illustrious public servant has to say. So here goes. He's the former director of pediatric neurosurgery at John Hopkins University. As we all know, he was a 2016 Republican presidential candidate and formerly Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under the Trump presidency. He also is the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor in the land. Degrees? He holds more than 70 honorary doctorate degrees. Where he found the time to put pen to paper, well, we'll let him explain that. He's a top-selling author whose latest book is entitled Created Equal, The Painful Past, Confusing Present, and Hopeful Future of Race in America. It's an honor to bring to the broadcast Dr. Ben Carson. Dr. Ben Carson, how are you? I'm doing very well, and thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for coming on. And your latest book uh, is something that I think America needs to delve into. So uh, in this book, you lay out hope and an inspiring roadmap for how America can come together. Why did you settle on this topic and give us some hope that this actually can be achieved? Well, you know, I was noticing that everything these days seems to be circling back around to race. And race is being used as a cudgel to beat people into submission, make white people feel guilty, make black people and minorities feel like victims. And really using a lot of falsehoods uh, to create, you know, false impressions. Uh, you know, as just an example, you take the George Floyd incident. It was horrible. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. In but it was presented in such a way that you would think that this was a common phenomenon. This was something that was going on all the time when this is way off on the end of the bell curve. And there are over 50 million police civilian interactions every year. And yet, the number of black unarmed black men who are killed by police by the Washington Post, by their count, is less than two dozen. So it is vanishingly rare 
very unusual to occur. And you have to understand why it's taken up the way it is and used the way that it is to create a narrative. Because around the same time, there was another case that was very similar where the police used the same technique, knee on the back of the neck, face to the ground. The guy was saying, I'm going to die. And he did die. You heard almost nothing about it because he was white and it didn't fit the narrative of, the, of, of systemic racism. And that is really problematic. And then, you know, there are those who say America is systemically racist. You can't get ahead, particularly if you're black in this country. But just in my lifetime, the country has changed so dramatically. When I was a kid and a black person came on television in a non-servile role, it was a big deal. You called everybody into the living room, everybody come watch this, this is a big deal. And today, we have black admirals and generals and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and heads of foundations uh, I, and universities, including Ivy League universities. Uh, we've elected a black president twice, black vice president. To say that, that it's all the same, that we haven't made progress, is sticking one's head in the sand. That um, We haven't reached nirvana. We still have progress to make. There's no question about that. But we have to particularly have young minority students understand that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you. It's not somebody else. Somebody standing in the way, blocking you. You can get around them. As my mother used to always tell me, if you walk into an auditorium full of racist, bigoted people, you don't have a problem. They have a problem because they're all going to cringe and wonder if you can sit next to them and you're going to sit anywhere you want. So, you know, that's kind of the way that I've approached things. And it's worked extremely well for me. And uh, doesn't mean there, there isn't some racism. There always will be racism if there are unfair people. But you don't have to let that stop you. You don't have to let that dictate your life. I understand and hear what you're saying, you know, and in your book, you say that even though slavery in America formally ended in the 1860s, the vestiges of that evil institution are still with us today. And those vestiges often inflict guilt on some and facilitate feelings of victimhood in others. It seems like this is being used, which is the cultural Marxism thing, to pit Black against white, the same way you pit male against female, the same way you could pit rich against poor, divide, and then somebody wants to come in on a white horse to uh, solve it. And obviously that's socialism. Uh, Please explain, please explain about the vestiges of how they're using it to make blacks think they're victims and make white feel guilty for things they haven't even done. Well, one of the vestiges is... uh, in places like Mississippi and Alabama during slavery, uh, there were frequently more slaves than there were slave owners. And they were very concerned always about the possibility of slave uprisings. So they had to keep the slaves divided. So they would tell the ones in the house, you're better than the ones in the yard. Tell the ones in the yard, you're better than the ones in the field. Keep them at each other's throats. Even after slavery ended, the light-skinned ones, you're better than the medium-skinned ones. Medium-skinned ones, you're better than the dark-skinned ones. And uh, keeping that division going so that even today, you have people who want to make sure that the black community does not unite. So that person, because they don't buy this, 
they're an Uncle Tom, they're a race trader, they're people that you should hate. And all of this is uh, accomplishing the same thing, keeping people divided. Recognize that the black community in the United States of America, if they began to work together, would be incredibly powerful. Uh, the total wealth of black America is over a trillion dollars. There's only like 10 countries that have a GDP of a trillion dollars, just to put that mm -hmm. into perspective for you. And if you learn how to turn dollars over in your own community, very much like the Jewish community and uh, many of the uh, Middle Eastern communities do, that creates enormous amount of wealth before you send the money out. And uh, you have to learn to support each other and bring each other along when you have success. And people know that if the black community ever did that, it would be amazingly powerful. And in some of the places that sprung up after slavery, you know, like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, there was a tremendous amount of black wealth generated in the black Wall Street. There were places in Florida like that as well. And uh, so we have to, at some point, stop being manipulated in the black community. Uh, and that's been a huge problem, manipulation. That's also destroyed our family structure. The family structure was one of the things that allowed black families to endure slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and all the things that occurred. And as that family structure has broken down, along with the abandonment of faith, uh, you see the community is being absolutely decimated. Yep, I hear you. You know, you just you just mentioned Jim Crow, and in your book, you parallel similarities between the cancel culture of today and Jim Crow from back in the day. Until now, I had never even considered them to be similar kinds of rotten fruit from the same stank tree. Please explain, because you really are onto something here about how the cancel culture of today are using the same tactics Jim Crow used back when we were growing up. Yes, well, of course, they were both used for the same purpose, and that is to elevate one group and to elevate their opinions and to depress another and keep them in a submissive position. And uh, they are almost identical in the way that they do that, and neither one of them has any place in a free society. Uh, and look what, look what cancel culture has done to the freedom that we once enjoyed in this country. When you have people wandering around and afraid to express themselves, afraid to say what they really believe, afraid to do the things that they want to do. And that was really the promise of America in the beginning, that it would be the land of the free. But you can't be the land of the free if you're not the home of the brave, which means you got to be willing to sort of face some of the things. Just like we had to face Jim Crow, you got to face cancel culture. If you submit to it, it just gets worse. And it takes more of your rights each time. Yeah. I hear you. Instead of using race as an excuse to remake America into something completely antithetical to the Constitution, in your book, created equal, you believe we can have great success right here, right now, all of us collectively, through magnifying our nation's strengths instead of 
uplifting and always pointing to the historical weaknesses. Uh, that's the answer. Can we accomplish that? And if so, how? Well, first of all, those who believe in our nation and have real perspective on our history need to be vocal. We've had too many people who just sort of stand in a corner with their head down and hope that no one calls them a nasty name. And you can't do that. You can't be the land of the free if you're not the home of the brave. And we have so many wonderful things that we need to talk about, that we need to proclaim. We need to make sure that our young people understand all the things that are available to them, but what is necessary to get there. Nobody's going to hand you all this stuff. Uh, or in some cases, they do hand you all this stuff. <laughs> it makes you very dependent. One of the things that you know was most distressing to me as Secretary of HUD was seeing how many people up on the Hill wanted people to be dependent and resisted strenuously the programs that we were creating to give people independence and self-sufficiency. Because if they have them in a dependent position, you can control them. You can control their voting habits and, and, and what they think. And that's exactly what's happened uh, in, in many of our communities. And the good thing is, I think a lot of people are starting to see it now. A lot of people are starting to wake up. And, uh, you know, the, the whole racial divide that has occurred has been very intentional. And it's so unnecessary. You know, I can tell you as a brain surgeon, you know, when I open somebody's skull, I'm operating on the thing that makes them who they are. Their mm -hmm. skin doesn't make them who they are. Their hair doesn't make them. The shape of their nose doesn't make them. The brain makes them who they are. And it's actually very superficial when you judge people on those kinds of characteristics. That's what animals do. And that's why their brains are a little different than, than human brains. I talk about that in the book. You take a, a human brain versus a dog brain. The surface topography is quite similar, you know, frontal lobes, parietal lobes, temporal lobes, occipital lobes, cerebellum, brainstem, midbrain. But the animal's midbrain is much better developed because that's the part of the brain that allows you to react, you know, cat-like mm -hmm. reflexes very, very quickly to superficial stimulus. But the human brain is very complex in terms of its frontal lobe development. That's where you engage in rational thought processing. So we have the ability, unlike animals, to extract information from the distant past, admix it with information from the present, and project it into the future. A year, five years, 10 years, 20 years and do complex calculations, which means we can, in fact, evaluate someone by the content of their character and not like an animal, just by the color of their skin. That's how, how it's supposed to be. Dr. Carson, I'm afraid to ask you this next question because as time goes on, I am afraid, deathly afraid of this answer. You know, you and I both having been born black and having lived through segregation and certain things, we treasure the opportunity to be free of freedom, freedom of choice, freedom to go where we want. I remember growing up in Summit, New Jersey, couldn't sleep in the hotel. There were certain things that I wasn't able to do. I'm sure you went through this. What is scaring me, it looks like there's a whole swath of people in America today who are afraid 
of freedom because with freedom comes responsibility. So they are willing to give up their freedom and let the government do it for them. Uh, well, you're talking about socialism. There you go. Basically. That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> there are too many people saying, yeah, let the government, let them give me, I'll take a little few handouts if I don't have to be responsible, because if I'm responsible, A, I, I have to pay for my bad choices, and B, I may fail. Well, interestingly enough, Khrushchev, 60 years ago, said to Eisenhower, your grandchildren's children will live under communism and we won't have to fire one shot. Now, what did he know? He knew that all you had to do is gain control of the educational system so that you could indoctrinate the children, gain control of the media so that you could spoon feed the people only what you wanted them to hear and exclude the things that you didn't want them to hear, replace faith in God with faith in government, and escalate the national debt to such levels that you could justify massive taxation, redistribution of wealth, and complete dependence on the government. Does any of that sound familiar? <laughs> it should. That are happening right now. And it's so important that we recognize them and that we put up the appropriate resistance or we go the same way as many other nations have gone. You take a place like Venezuela. I visited there many times. And uh, it was a beautiful place, beautiful resorts and hotels and mm -hmm. museums and shopping centers. And the biggest thing that people argued about was whether or not they were the most beautiful people in the world. That was the controversy. And uh, now look at them, almost overnight, from the wealthiest country in South America to the poorest country, with people trying to escape from there. Uh, but... I do think that there is a difference between the people of Venezuela and the people of America. I don't think the people of America will go along with it. I think they're waking up in droves right now. I hope you're right. And speaking of Venezuela, back in the days when I was married, back in the 80s, uh, we took a lot of cruises, have been to Caracas several times, so I know what you're talking about. Uh, and this is a very dangerous thing. And the thing that you brought up, the most important thing is education. Now, in your book, you say education is the great equalizer. That's true. And that's the way it should be. And that would be great. But hasn't so much of education become Marxist indoctrination, where you got parents spending up to 40000 or more per year to turn their kids into good little socialists, whether they're aware of it or not? So how do we deal with this? If education is so important, and as you said, and as on this show, almost every podcast, we don't go by without talking about W. Cleon Skousen's book from 1959, The Naked Communist. You listed several of the planks, get control of the churches, the schools, the media, Hollywood, you know, the educational system. They've done that. How can we use education now? when so much of education is skewed with Marxist indoctrination? Can, can we, how do we work around this? Well, I think it's happening already. Uh, between now and, and back to 2020, the number of homeschoolers has doubled mm. and continues to go up. And the number of charter schools is growing, the number of private schools is growing. All of that will, of course, put pressure on the public school system. So we'll wait to see what happens there. 
But we, you know, we need to have a new administration that believes that schools are for educating kids with the essentials of life and not with uh, all of this social dogma. Uh, you know, your value system should come from your home and from your family. You shouldn't have other people telling you uh, those kinds of things, quite frankly. And that's what school, school was never for that. You know, when Alexis de Tocqueville came to America mm -hmm. in 1931 to study, what was, what was making this country barely 50 years old already able to compete with all of Europe? He wanted to know one of the things he looked at was the school system. And he was massively impressed that he could go out in the woods and find a mountain man and the guy could read and the guy could tell him about some of our founding documents and it was amazing and if you really want to be impressed go look up a mid 1800s sixth grade exit exam and see what you had to know in order to get a sixth grade certificate i mean they were serious in those days about what an education was not all this garbage that we're we're teaching today. And that makes a difference. And my mother fully understood that. And that's why she pushed me and my brother so hard. You know, you got to read. And, and, the re and she could barely read herself. She had less than a third grade education. But she was a domestic, clean other people's houses. And they were beautiful houses. And she, and she started spying on them. And she said, you know, the reason they do so well is because they read all the time. They <laughs> TV all the time. And she came home and imposed that on us. And we were not happy campers. But all of her friends were criticizing her and saying, you can't make boys stay in the house and read books. They'll grow up and they'll hate you. And I would overhear them. And I said, you know, they're right, mother. But it, we still had to do it. And she got the last laugh because one son became a brain surgeon. The other became a rocket scientist. There you go. And speaking of your mother and your upbringing, you grew up in Detroit, almost in an entirely black environment, black neighborhood, black schools, black church congregation. You moved to Boston where the school was predominantly white. Can you capsulize how these experiences led to you becoming the man you are today? And have you ever pondered who you would be today if you had remained in Detroit? Well, uh, all of those experiences obviously played an important role. Uh, when we moved back to Detroit, we lived on the white side of the track, so I was in a white school there too. And I was a terrible student, but it was expected. No, no one kind of expected you, if you're black, to do well. And over the course of the next couple of years, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class. The white kids accommodated to it very nicely, and the, to me, to them, I just became Ben Carson, this really smart kid. Um, but a lot of the teachers had a real problem with it. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I relate some of the stories there. But then again, I, I do recognize that people are products of their environment. And, you know, racism is something that's taught to people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you can unteach it also. And a lot of times when I encountered things in the hospital, for instance, when I went to Johns Hopkins as an intern in 1977, it was very rare to see black doctors, and particularly in a surgical specialty. Um, and I would go on the ward with my scrubs on, and invariably one of the nurses would say, I'm sorry, Mr. Johnson, not ready to be taken to the OR yet, assuming that I was an orderly, of course. 
Mm. I would be very nice. And I said, well, gee, I'm sorry he's not ready. I'm Dr. Carson. I'm here. Oh, they turned 18. Shades. <laughs> I, I would be so nice to them. I had a friend for life after that, let me tell you. Uh, but, you know, I, I did realize that in their world, every black man they had ever seen coming to the ward with scrubs on was an orderly. So why would they think something different? And, uh, you know, sometimes we just have to be a little patient with people and we can serve in a very nice educational way uh, to change people's minds. Yeah. And and exactly what you said about racism being taught. I remember growing up in the 50s, uh, I would watch two kids playing in the sandbox. I'm a little kid and I didn't even know what was going on. All I knew there was a white kid and a black kid playing and they were playing fine. And then the mother of the white kid would come and yank the kid out of the out of the uh, out of the out of the sandbox. I remember when I was working in the A&P when I was in high school, a little white girl came and drank after I drank out of the water fountain. Her mother yanked her, smacked her on the head, hand and said, don't you ever drink after a nigger. You know, it, it, you're, you're right. It has to be taught. Speaking about being taught, I'd like to give guests a mic drop. Now, mic drop is which I'll just name a topic, give you an opportunity to freestyle. Are you ready? Because it's a topic that's extensive in your book. Um, critical race theory. Well, you know, critical race theory is a scourge on our society. And people have taken the bad parts of our history and tried to create a whole system around it. Critical race theory comes from critical legal theory, which says that our laws were created in this land to keep white people forever in a superior position and to keep uh, black people suppressed. And critical race theory emanates from that. But it's designed to create division. And the best tool that they have for division is race, because that's such an obvious one. But if you're a careful observer of our society, you'll see that they're also driving wedges between people on the basis of age and income and political affiliation and sex and virtually anything that they can find, because you become the savior of each of those individual groups if you're successful and you control the society that way. And that, that's an age-old tactic. And it seems to be working in our society, or at least it was until recently. I think COVID helps us out quite a bit mm -hmm. because it gave parents an opportunity to actually see what was being taught. This indoctrination, which had been going on really for quite some time. But a couple of summers ago, we saw the results of kids who've been indoctrinated like this, engaging in all these riots and Antifa stuff, tearing up people's property, burning everything in these mostly peaceful riots. Um, I mean, just crazy stuff going on. But that doesn't happen unless your mind has been poisoned uh, to believe that your system of thinking is the only right way and that anybody who disagrees with you deserves punishment. And this is exactly the same way that the, the radical Islamists think. You know, you're an infidel. If you don't believe the way I do, you deserve to either be killed, you must be converted or killed. Uh, we're not far from that kind of thinking. And that's why we need to really expose it and eliminate it. 
You're right about that, Dr. Carson. The name of his latest book, Created Equal, The Painful Past, Confusing Present, and Hopeful Future of Race in America. Dr. Ben Carson, please, you never write a book to put people on a ledge. We always write books to give people hope. So please tell people the hopeful message from your book, and then please let the audience know where they can contact you and how they can get your book. Well, the book is available anywhere uh, books are sold, and uh, I can be contacted at AmericanCornerstone.org. We also have uh, Little Patriots, uh, LittlePatriotsLearning.com, where you can go and get your kids registered free of charge, beautiful cartoons and wonderful lessons on the cornerstone pillars that made us into a great country, faith, liberty, community, and life all free of charge because uh, we have wonderful underwriters and some of the books that we sell, uh, we use the proceeds to fund the program. Right. Okay. Give people the premise of the hope of your book, you know, because so many people are on the ledge now. What is the hope if they read this book, why they should be and will be encouraged? Well, what we have to decide as a society is do we build our future on our past failures, whether we build it on the tremendous success that we've had. That will dictate what happens to the future of America. And each one of us has a role to play in how that works out. That is so true. Dr. Ben Carson, I really appreciate the time you've given me. If if ever, I'd love to have you back because we just touched the tip of the iceberg, but I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for coming on. God bless you. You've been a, uh, you know, thank you for your service. God bless you, your family, and just continue to be uh, a beacon of light and truth. Thank you. It's been an absolute delight to be with you. Thank you. Dr. Ben Carson, everybody, bringing mega doses of truth. And we have a man here who uh, has been there, done that, bought the t shirt, and all you need to know. This man has separated twins. Uh, you know, when you talk about brilliant and when you talk about the ability to do something on a very, very, very high level, it doesn't get much higher than that. I know a lot of us, we look at uh, entertainers and actors and actresses and sports stars and we make heroes out of that. But boy, somebody forgetting even running for the presidency on the Republican side, when you can separate twins, <laughs> that's serious business. So once again, we thank Dr. Ben Carson, the name of his book, Created Equal, The Painful Past, Confusing Present, and Hopeful Future of Race in America. Thank you, Dr. Ben Carson, for providing your analysis in regard to some of our past ills your expertise in breaking down our present issues, and your insight giving hope for a better future. This podcast is available for download at RadioInfluence.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hope you'll subscribe to it, leave a rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us. So until the next time, this is your host, Gary Benford, saying God bless you, God bless your families, and God bless America.